I'm not big on giving introductions when I get into the books of the Bible. Not that I think that they're without merit, but I just sort of like to bring my introductory material into the text as I teach it. But there is one thing I want you to know before we begin these first few verses of the Gospel of Luke. I want you to know that the first four verses, and look down in your Bible and just glance at the first four verses of Luke chapter 1, the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke are one long sentence in the ancient Greek manuscript. And not only are they one long sentence, but, and look, I say this according to the commentaries I read. I don't want to deceive you guys for a moment. I'm not some Greek scholar. I'm not some expert. I don't, you know, bring out a scroll and read, you know, from the ancient manuscripts. But, but I know how to read and research the guys who are scholars. And from what I read, these first four verses, this one great long sentence is beautifully written in classical Greek. And it's just the kind of opening that classical Greek historians like Dionysus or Herodotus use to open up their histories. And by writing it with such technically beautiful Greek, Luke is showing something. He's telling everybody who read it in the ancient Greek manuscript, I know my stuff. I'm an academic. I've read the classics. I know how to do research. I know history. I am a top-notch scholar. He uses that kind of Greek for the first four verses, one long sentence, just to establish that. And then you know what? And then at verse 5, he starts talking in the Greek of the common street, the kind of Greek that everybody spoke. He does that to show, I am a legit academic and scholar who's bringing you this message, but... I'm bringing a message that's for every person, and I want the common man to understand what I'm saying. So keep that in mind as we take a look here, starting at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Stop right there. I know I'm stopping in the middle of a sentence. But the first two verses speak of Luke's mentioning prior versions of the life of Jesus. Luke wrote with full awareness that other people had already written accounts of the life of Jesus. I mean, Mark had almost certainly been written before this, probably Matthew, at least in my mind, and there were probably other that were uh, other accounts of the life of Jesus and collections of his sayings that, that were largely true, but yet not perfectly inspired, and so they're not preserved for us. So he says that in verse 1, many have taken in hand. But notice in verse, two, verse 1, he also says, they've taken in hand to record those things which have been fulfilled among us. You see, Luke says... We have read from these other men the things that were already known and believed. They're in our heart. We know these things. We believe them. And by the way, don't miss it that Luke uses the word us. He counts himself among the Christian community. And so Luke was this man, this devoted companion of Paul. He's also known as the beloved physician in Colossians chapter 4. Luke was this man who was a doctor. And by the way, a doctor... Therefore, a man acquainted with science and research, and that's evident all throughout his work, but not only with science and research, but with great sympathy to the human condition. Now, Luke was also a Gentile, and that's of some notice to us, but because he is the only Gentile, at least that we're aware of, among all the writers of the New Testament. Think about it. 
Matthew, Mark, John, Paul, James, Peter. All of these men were Jewish. Luke, the lone Gentile. By the way, we know that Luke was a Gentile because of how he's mentioned in Paul's letter. He's mentioned among other Gentiles. And I think it's fascinating that God gave this lone Gentile author, this one man among all the authors of the New Testament who is a Gentile, he gave him the privilege of not only writing and contributing to the New Testament, but writing more of it than any other single author. Do you understand that? That when you put Luke and Acts together, that's a greater single portion of the New Testament than any other, other, other writer wrote. Now, that's assuming, and please, I don't want any questions or fighting over this. I know we invited your questions. I don't want questions over this. <laughs> that's assuming that Paul is not the author of Hebrews. And so I don't want any arguments about whether or not that's another issue for another time. Now, notice one other thing he says in verse 2 there. He says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Luke tells us that all those prior accounts of Jesus' work were based on eyewitness accounts. When Mark wrote his gospel, eyewitnesses to the events. When Matthew wrote his gospel, eyewitnesses to the events. Many of the other collected works of Jesus that were going around, not things that Jesus wrote, but just copies of his sayings and such, eyewitnesses. Jesus is telling, excuse me, Luke is telling us about Jesus that the stories were given by eyewitnesses and so will Luke's account be from eyewitnesses. Now he continues on. We broke it off in the middle of this sentence. Take it out now starting at verse 3. He says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now Luke was not one of those who was an eyewitness of those things that happened in the life of Jesus. Does everybody understand that? Luke lived in a different time, well, not a different time, he lived in the same time, but in a different place, among different people. He didn't even live in Judea at the time that Jesus lived in Judea. He was not an eyewitness, but Luke knew who the eyewitnesses were, and he knew how to talk to them, and he knew how to interview them. So he said it seemed good to him to be able to do this. Why? Because look at verse 3, he had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Luke said, I've researched this. I've spoken to the eyewitnesses myself. I get it about the life of Jesus. I get it about how he lived, what he said, how he ministered. And now I can relate it to you, verse 3 as it says, to write to you an orderly account. Now Luke's account of the life of Jesus is generally the same as Matthew and Mark's. But you'll find that other things are certainly out of order compared to Matthew and Mark's. This gives us the indication that Luke was more diligent, more concerned with chronology in the stating of his Gospels. It it may be of some interest to you, I don't really know. But it may be of some interest to you that ancient peoples, especially ancient peoples from the East, and we would regard Jewish culture as an Eastern culture, they weren't so interested in chronology the way we are. We, as inheritors of a Western mindset, tend to be very concerned with chronology. The story has to be told one, two, three, four. But that's not so much in the Hebraic mind or in the ancient Eastern mind. They said it was fine to tell it one, three, four, two. You, you, you could kind of mess around with the chronology. It's just the way that they thought. They weren't so concerned with it. Luke says, no, 
I'm going to be a little more concerned with chronology, and it makes sense because he grew up as more of a child of the West, so to speak, than the other biblical writers. And so he says, no, this is important to me. I'm going to lay these things out in an orderly account. And he's writing to, verse 3 mentions, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a person. Well, some people think Theophilus is a code word for Christians in general because the name Theophilus means God lover. And and so some people think, well, Theophilus wasn't actually a person, but but actually he's just writing to all the God lovers in the world. No, probably not, because he uses that specific form of address, most excellent Theophilus. And, And that was a strict Roman form of address, probably referring to a Roman official of some high authority. And so, no, it's most likely a person, and if I can tell you my personal bias, I I can't prove it, but it seems to make a lot of sense to me, that both Luke and Acts were prepared as defense briefs to this man named Theophilus, who was probably an official who was handling Paul's case, and by the way, whom Paul may have all led to the Lord. Because here in verse 4, it says that he had already been instructed in some of these things. Luke was giving him more the complete story from beginning to end just so he has it in his mind and he has it in order. But since it makes perfect sense to me that this would be prepared as a defense brief for Paul before he went on trial before Caesar for his crime, so to speak, of spreading the gospel in the Roman Empire. So with that introduction out of the way, you know, you kind of hear the narrator's voice. Like I say, I hope it is for you like it is for me. I hope you you probably get tired of me saying it because I say it all the time. The Bible's like a movie running in my mind. And I want it to be that way for you, too. So as the narrator speaks those last few words, you know, they're on the screen rolling up the first four verses. Now the camera zooms in. Here we go. We come from that big crane shot down here to earth. Verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And not to make too big of a point of it, but if you just look momentarily at verse 5, when it says, in the days of Herod. Do you understand what that says? It means these events happened in a real time. Herod was a real man who ruled over real territory that you can go and visit the things that he built today in Israel. You can see the ruins and the, and the reconstructions of the things. This is Luke's way of telling us this is a real story. This is not once upon a time. It happened in the days of Herod. And then in the very next words, he mentions a certain priest named Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. He wants us to know that these events not only happened at a definite time, they happened to definite people. Not fairy tale people, not Hansel and Gretel, not Jack and the Magic Beanstalk. These are real people that it happened to. And these real men and women had a real problem because they were godly, they loved the Lord, they served the Lord, but they were well advanced in age, yet nevertheless they were barren. Now my heart really goes out to people who want to have children but can't have children or haven't been able to have children up to this day. 
You know, I just think that that's a special difficulty, a special burden that you have to live with if you have it. But I just want you to understand this, that, that if you have had to live with that pain, either permanently or temporarily in your life, it would have been far worse if you lived in the time of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Because back then, even more powerfully than anybody might feel it now, if somebody was childless, they would look at them and say, you are cursed by God. Why don't you have any children? It's not because of some medical thing. It's not because of some, you know, biological difficulty or hurdle. Why don't you have children? It's because God hates you. That's what people thought. And Elizabeth and Zacharias had to live with that burden upon their soul every day of their life. Now, he was a good man. He was a righteous man of the division of Abijah. And then one day, well, one day he got the lucky ticket, so to speak. Verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Now the priests of Israel were made up of the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Now Aaron, the brother of Moses had lived, oh, at least 1,500 years before the time of uh, Elizabeth and John. Excuse me, Elizabeth and Zacharias. So by their time, there were thousands upon thousands of descendants of Aaron. There are estimates that there were as many as 20,000 priests in those days. And if there's 20,000 priests... It was very rare for one priest to be singled out for one privilege that he should do this work of burning incense in the temple of the Lord. You see, to a godly man like Zechariah, this was probably the biggest event of his life when the postman, I don't know how they did it, maybe some temple mail courier came to him and you know, brought the lucky letter or whatever it was. He opened it up and said, I'm selected. On such and such day, it's my turn to burn incense in the temple. I can't believe I get this privilege. There's 20,000 priests or more than 20,000, but I'm going to get this opportunity on this day. And don't you think that he had to wonder, God, why did you give it to me? Why did you give it to me on this day? What are you going to want to say to me? If you were Zacharias, wouldn't have you done this? I would have done this. Wouldn't you have sought out other priests who had already done it and gone and said, tell me what it was like. You went into the temple building, but there it was. You know, there, there was the golden menorah on your left side. There was the tables of showbread on your right side. There was the altar of incense right in front of you. And right behind the altar of incense was the veil. And behind the veil was the Holy of Holies. You got to walk in there and burn incense and pray. What was it like? Tell me what happened. I want to know everything from beginning to end. I can only imagine how excited Zacharias was. So this was his privilege, verse 9 says, to go and burn incense. Now, according to the law of Moses, incense was to be offered to God on the golden altar every morning and every evening. And by this time, there was an established ritual in Israel for this practice. First, they cast several lots to determine at the morning sacrifice, who was going to do this job? And they had three people that were brought forward by the lots. The first person determined who was going to clean the altar and prepare the fire. 
okay, well, look, that's a great job, but, you know, cleaning up the sacrifice and preparing the fire, that's okay, but not so great. The second lot, that determined who would kill the morning sacrifice and sprinkle the altar, the golden candlestick, and the altar of incense. Now, that's a pretty good job too, right? Better than the first one. Because with the first job, you never even get to go into the temple building. The second one, yeah, you have to kill the animal, but you get to take the blood into the temple building and sprinkle it on the candlestick and on the altar of incense. That was a privileged duty. But then the third lot was the most privileged. He was the one who would come with a bowl of burning coals and a handful of incense, and he would go over to the altar of incense with the coals and the incense, and he would burn them upon the altar of incense, which was basically square, you know, a little bit shorter than this table that I'm in front of right now, but just about the size of this table. He would come, and on top of that, he would burn it, and the incense would drift up, and it would go out through vents that were in the roof of the temple, and the people could see the smoke and smell it, and they would know that as that incense went up, then that priest was praying for the nation. And I don't know how many people would be out front. I don't know how many people attended the national daily devotions of Israel at that time. Hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know. But there would be a lot of people outside waiting and praying and making that their morning devotions. You can see that for a man like Zacharias, this was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So before dawn, on that special day, hundreds of worshipers gathered together at the temple. And the morning sacrifice began when the incense priest walked toward the temple through the outer courts, and he struck a gong-like instrument with some unpronounceable Hebrew name. And now, at the sound of that gong striking, or it was like a gong, the Levites would assemble and get together for the gathered praise of worship to God. Then the other two priests, chosen by Lot that morning, would walk up to the temple on each side, the two other priests on, the, on each side of the uh, incense priest. We'll call him that. So Zechariah walks up the stairs. as the other two priests on either side. He comes to the doors of the temple. The other two guys leave him, and he walks in. In front of him is the golden altar of incense. On his left is the golden menorah. On his right are the table or the tables of showbread. And in front of him is the veil that separates the most holy place from the holy place. And he comes in. He lays the coals on the altar. He begins to pray. And look at it, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the altar of incense. They knew it. Everybody knew the ritual. And Zacharias was doing his thing. And there followed right there out on the assembled crowd outside several moments of dead silence on the temple precincts. Nobody said a word because the priest was inside the temple building praying on behalf of the people. Now, if you're Zacharias, what do you do? Do do you just go in there and say, Oh, Lord, uh, bless this day, and I hope nobody gets hurt in the nation today. In Jesus' name, amen. No! You think about that prayer forever, don't you? From the moment you get that announcement that you're going in and doing this, what am I going to pray? How am I going to phrase it? You might even write it out. This is the most important prayer of your life, and you think about it carefully. 
No doubt you attend the morning uh, sacrifices as worship. You know what's going on. You're there what you pray. Now, I'm going to offer a suspicion. This, this is a suspicion. I can't prove it. But don't you think that probably Zacharias did not pray for his personal needs at such a moment? That he would think it beyond him. That he wouldn't think, I should pray for myself. And I tell you, and again, I, I understand I'm speculating here. If you disagree with me, well, then you disagree. I mean... It could go either way, but I'll just tell you how it feels to me in the text. That Zechariah would not pray that God would give them a child. Why? Because he would think it's too selfish. And number two, and I don't mean this to sound funny, look, Elizabeth's old. They're not young anymore. You know, it's not like two 25-year-olds praying, Lord, give us a child, right? He's old, she's old, their time has passed, that ship has sailed. Okay, Lord, you know, bless us. But he's probably not even thinking of that. But then what happens? Look at it, verse 11. I love this. You guys got to know, this is one of my favorite accounts in the whole New Testament. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, I don't know about you, but I picture it. There he is. He's just, he's closing eyes, praying with all his might. He opens his eyes, and what? There's an angel just kind of leaning up against. To me, that's hilarious. Because if you're Zacharias, what do you think when you see that? The first thing I would think if I was, does this happen to everybody who does this? How come nobody told me about this before? No, all the guys I talked to, none of them told me that an angel appears to you. Is this like some secret thing you only get once you're in here? Look at this. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah sees him and whatever surprise he had at the beginning was almost immediately turned to fear because almost like everybody else in the scriptures, when he sees an angel, he's not seeing a fat baby with wings. He's not seeing some effeminate guy with long hair, you know, and flowery, you know, bird wings, something like that. He's seeing some creature that's impressive and fearsome. The kind of creature that you'd be tempted to bow down before their feet and, and worship them. He's full of fear. He's trembling. So what does the angel say? He says, do not be afraid. Verse 13, your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Again, I know I'm speculating a little bit. Would you just grant me this? I don't think he prayed for a son. I don't think he's talking about the prayer he prayed right then. I think he's talking about probably the thousands of prayers that Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed through the years for a child. And this is something very precious to me. God doesn't forget those prayers. You know, have you ever prayed for something for a long time and nothing seems to come of it? And you wonder, were those prayers wasted? Those prayers were not wasted. 
God heard them. God cherished them. And if you prayed them with an upright heart, with a surrender towards God, even if it wasn't God's will at that particular time or at no time, God still heard it and cherished it. And so I don't think he's talking about a request that Zechariah has made right there at the moment, because Zechariah seems surprised when the angel says yes. Zechariah says, yes, that's just what I asked for. That's not going to be his reaction at all. Instead, his reaction is, what? But this was the promise that you will receive a child, a child. In verse 13, you shall call his name John. Verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. This seems to be an indication that this man who would be born, this child that would be born from Elizabeth and Zacharias was to be a Nazarite from his birth, taking a Nazarite vow from the very beginning, such as Samson was supposed to have taken, be faithful to from the very beginning years of his life. And then verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Oh, friends, that's rich. I tell you, I'm very tempted. I'm not going to do it because I'm trying to be a man of self-control. I could go off on a 30-minute excursion right here on how God can fill our children with the Holy Spirit. And don't despise the work of God even in our little ones. You've got your little child and you wonder how much of the Lord they can know. Listen, I don't know about your particular child's capabilities or talents or giftings, but I'll tell you this. God can fill a child with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. And so think big spiritual thoughts and pray big spiritual prayers for your children. But going on here, look at the work he said he would do. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then verse 16, he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Again, I don't have time to go into it in greater depth. But what he's making a reference to here is the angel is he's referring to the closing words of the Old Testament in the prophet Malachi, where it says that the prophet Elijah would go forth and that he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And you see what he's saying here? It's almost as if the angel is announcing God's been silent to Israel for 400 years since those last words of the prophet Malachi. I'm here to speak again. I'm here to bring the where it left off 400 years ago. Now let's begin it again, right here, right now. And look at Zacharias' response in verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. What a response to an angel, isn't it? The angel says this, and not only tells you that you're going to have a son, but he's going to be a great man of destiny, that God has a call and God has a purpose. A unique role for him in God's plan of redemption. And what was the response? Yeah. How can I know it? Can you prove it to me some way? You know, my wife's pretty old. I don't know if you've seen her lately. (laughs) This was a pretty big challenge. But isn't this sweet? There's such a sweetness to Zacharias. I I have such a sympathy for him. I, I don't think that it was he didn't want to believe. He wanted to believe. But you know, sometimes it just seems too big, doesn't it? Too big to really believe. Well, let me tell you, God wasn't, wasn't uh, too small to fulfill such a big request. Verse 19, I love this. Make the contrast here. Uh, let me start again at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. 
But behold, you'll be mute, not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Do you see the contrast? Zechariah says, I'm an old man. Gabriel says, I don't care who you are. I'm Gabriel. Don't you know who I am? I stand in the very presence of God. I'm one of the anointed cherubs who covers. I'm not just any old angel. I'm one of the heavy ones. Do you think I waste my time, you know, hanging out among you puny earthlings from kicks? I'm down here to deliver a serious message, mister, and you're not believing it. So I I don't care who you are. Let me tell you who I am. And just because you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute. Now listen, friends, God is so rich in mercy. I can hardly express it. Do you know how rich in mercy God is? He did not take the promise away when Zechariah didn't believe it. Wouldn't Gabriel have had every right to say, all right, dude, have it your way. She can't do it. I'll find somebody else. Tomorrow, another guy is going to come into this temple. I'll talk to him. God didn't do that. He would have had every right to do it. But instead he said, no, no. Just because of your disbelief, I'm not going to take away the promise. Oh, you'll pay a price. Believe me, you're going to pay a price, Zechariah. But the promise is still good because the promise is rooted more in who God is than in who Zechariah is. And what was the price? Well, behold, you'll be mute and not be able to speak. What do you think? How bad can that be? Friends, you don't even know how bad it could be. Look at it here, verse 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was that as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now, the custom was that after the priest did his thing burning the incense in the temple, that he came out from the temple as soon as he finished praying. And he needed to come out to assure the people, yes, I'm done praying, and yes, God did not strike me dead when I was in the temple. This was actually a legitimate concern that people had. Here's a priest in the temple of God, and they had specific rabbinic instructions to, the, to those priests. Don't you linger long in the temple. I think, number one, look, don't milk it, glory hog. People got jobs to go to, right? Don't you give your 45-minute prayer there in the temple. Do your business, get in there and get out. Not just so that you wouldn't be a glory hog and keep people waiting, but also so that people would know you weren't struck dead in there. Pray, do your business, get out. People are looking at their... I don't know, there's sundials on their hands or whatever it was. How long is this guy going to take? You know, Zechariah has been there a long time. Who knows? Maybe he's dead. Finally, he comes out. And this was the custom. When he finally comes out, the priest would come out and stand at the top of the steps of the temple with all the hundreds of people gathered around with the temple singers and the Levites ready to crank it up for the last bit of worship there. He would stand and he would give that great ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6, and then they would respond to the ironic blessing. You know the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. The congregation would respond by saying, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. So now Zechariah comes out and he's on the top of the steps, ready to give his thing, he's ready to say the words, and what happens? He tries to make the words come out. There's nothing coming out. 
Why? Because the angel struck him mute for his unbelief there in the temple. Now this is gross. Did, did you see this? Did you see this? It says there, right there in the text, he says, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Do you understand what that means? It's like he did charades. He acted out the story. What happened? They figured out that an angel spoke to him in the temple because he, what did he do? What did he do? You know, angel wings, baby me. You know, I don't know how he would have done it, but he acted it out somehow to where people got the message and they said, wow, God really did something. Doing the very best he could with hand motions or whatever he had. He left them knowing what God had done. Now, verse 24. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I just want to make a small point on this and then move on to something later in the chapter, and we'll wrap up. He went home to Elizabeth and had normal sexual relations with his wife. This is what I want to get. This was not an immaculate conception in Elizabeth. That would happen later with, with Mary, so to speak, where she would be, have experienced the virgin birth. We'll talk about that next week. But this, this was a conception achieved by normal means, but that was supernaturally blessed. W- without sounding too strange about it, Zacharias and Elizabeth still had to do their part But God said, I'll uniquely bless it. And that's how the work of God was done in this case. Now, let's just skip down to verse 57. And let's just read quickly and wrap this up because it's too good for me to leave this. Now, Elizabeth's full time came forth for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. Now listen, this, this is just the best of all time. Do you see what they did to him? They made signs to Zacharias, what should we call him? And for the thousand times, you don't think Zacharias paid a price for his unbelief? For nine months, everybody treated him like he was deaf as well as mute. And can't you just see him just thinking, for the thousandth time, I can hear you fine. It's just that I can't speak. Would you please speak to me like a normal human being? I, there's just, to me, the just most wonderful humor right there in that. And I think Gabriel smiled really big each time that happened. So they made signs to his fathers what they would have him called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, I can hear just fine. No, he wrote, his name is John. So they all marveled, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke praising God. Then fear came upon all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now next week we're going to get together and we're going to talk about wrapping up the, the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to fill in Mary's part and the rest of Zechariah's part. 
let me leave you with just this one point. Isn't it beautiful to you? It's beautiful to me how God gave Zacharias a second chance at faith. First chance of faith, Zacharias really put his foot in his mouth, didn't he? And he suffered for it. God didn't take the promise away, but he suffered for it. Every person who treated him like he was deaf for nine months was just another, like, in him for doing that. But God didn't take the promise away, and he gave him a second chance of faith. I wonder who here tonight, God's given you a second chance at faith. Or maybe it's your 102nd chance at faith. You've been unbelieving for so long. God's had that promise out in front of you, but you just haven't been able to receive it by faith. Can I just tell you, God gives you another chance at faith right here tonight. Receive it. So, Father, that's my prayer. We think, Lord, about how glorious it is that Jesus came, that a Savior was sent to this world, a Savior who would die on the cross and pay the sins for each and every one of us. And Lord, we see now at the very beginnings how you drew faith out of your people to welcome the coming of that King. So, Lord, draw faith out of us. And I pray in particular, Lord, for people here tonight, they need that second chance at faith. Won't you give it to them, Lord? And won't you bless them? Yes, Lord, there may be a price they've had to pay for their unbelief. Okay, Lord. But bless the faith that they put out towards you tonight. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.